if I were to die, what difference did I make with my photography? That could be like, hey, you know, I really put my all into weddings and these photos are gonna be really special to this couple. That is totally honorable and great. I mean, that is definitely worthwhile. But um, I also feel that a lot of photography, again, like I said before, is about the quick hit. It's about like, okay, deserts and floppy hats and beat up vans are popular right now. So I'm gonna go out and shoot that along with like everybody else. I'm gonna get my likes on Instagram and then I'm gonna see what else is cool and then we're gonna repeat it. And if you're listening and you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine, that's like part of your journey. But I'm just asking that people think deeper than that. What is the point of those photos? Hey everyone, my name is Michael Howard and welcome to the Musea podcast, which exists to help photographers have sustainable careers through meaningful photography. I'm Kirk Mastin and I'm the founder of Mastin Labs. We make film emulation software for photographers. Basically, I never really intended to start Mastin Labs. I was a wedding photographer for about 20 years and throughout that time, I really, I mean, I loved what I did, but I really felt disconnected from it in a way because I love shooting film. I mean, that's, that's my thing. Way before it was popular again, I guess, but it was just something that kind of like fed my soul. It, it connected me with what I was shooting. There's a real kind of Zen-like approach to it. It's really just you, this little box holding some organic material and then your subject. And you don't have that much to think about except connecting with what you're shooting. And I wanted to bring that back into my wedding photography. I was doing film photography outside of weddings and then shooting digital for weddings. And so against my better judgment, I started adding film back into my weddings and just eating the cost. It wasn't for my clients necessarily. It was just purely for myself, like just something that I enjoyed. I felt I had to bring that back into it in order to continue doing wedding photography because I felt like I wasn't being true to myself if I didn't. So in the beginning, I would just shoot like maybe five rolls of film throughout the day and then post just those images to the blog. So I, I was presenting myself as completely a film photographer, even though I couldn't really afford it. And being a wedding photographer has its like feast or famine moments. And I remember one year during the winter, I had just barely enough to pay the mortgage. I had to sell almost all of my camera gear, paid the mortgage, had some weddings roll in, and I made one decision that was insane at the time, but it's what changed everything. And that was to buy a Fuji Frontier scanner. I saw one come through uh, Facebook. Just someone was posting that they're selling one. It was one of the really old models, the SP2500. And I told my wife at the time, don't be scared. I know this is a lot of money, but I think if I get this, I'll be able to shoot almost all film and actually have it pay for itself in like a year. I kind of had written it out, like what it would cost to buy the scanner and use it and save the money, you know, by shooting and scanning myself. And that was a big gamble. I mean, that was, that brought us down to like zero dollars in our uh, bank account. And it was pretty scary, but I started getting more bookings. And that year I just really, really dove headfirst into film completely. I was shooting as much as I could. Every wedding was like primarily film at that point because I made it cheap for myself. And during this time, I started really questioning like, you know, what am I delivering to my client? If I was 100% honest with myself, I would want to deliver only film. That's what I believe in. But I still, even with a scanner, I couldn't always shoot film, you know? 
So during that time, I got to really know the scanner super well. I mean, like inside and out. It's just my personality is to explore and learn everything I can about a new tool. And I started seeing how I could reverse engineer that scanner into Lightroom so that I could get my final product to look consistent, you know, for my clients. So that I wasn't feeling like I was compromising, you know, like, okay, here, half of your images are really awesome and they really reflect me. And then half of your images, I'm like holding my nose and going like, okay, these are digital. You know, I don't really like these, but I had to do it. You know, my, my heart and soul isn't in it as much. And with reverse engineering that frontier, I was able to get closer and closer to getting a consistent like Portra 400 look. That was kind of my film at the time. At the same time, I started exploring other film emulation options out there. And I realized really quickly that none of them were really even close to film. I felt like they hadn't done their due diligence to actually Mm -hmm. match it because it certainly wasn't working for me. And I was comparing on every shoot. You would say they were maybe playing off the trendiness of the renaissance of film in a way versus actually trying to make it actually look like film. Oh, yeah. There were strange interpretations of it. I always thought of it as like, I lived in France for a year, a long time ago. And I remember going into an American bar where they were like trying to make it feel like you're in the West and they were really trying to make it authentic, but it's kind of like they missed it. They over-exaggerated some things and then left some things out completely. And it was like almost a caricature of itself. And I felt that was kind of the state of the industry for presets at the time was, oh, film is like really underexposed and there's no black point or white point, you know, because we didn't shoot our film right and we had it scanned at Walmart. And that was like, oh, that's what film looks like, you know, according to a lot of presets out there. And here I was like shooting weddings and trying to deliver more of a timeless look, a clean look that wasn't really like pulled in any direction by trends. And I was like, geez, none of this is like working out at all. And Eventually, my life kind of just forced me down this path of like, I had to just make something for myself. And I learned a lot, a lot about color theory, a lot about how the frontier sees color in particular, because that's the look I like from film, and a lot about Lightroom. And it took me like three years, but I was able to get a Portra 400 preset eventually that I felt was perfect. So during this time, like I was like posting blog posts where I was starting to make them, I kind of coined the term hybrid photography. Hybrid photography in the past used to mean shooting stills and then video at the same time. That never really caught on. Like People really tried to make that a thing, but it was too much work. And I started thinking of hybrid photography as like shooting film and digital together. You're getting like the best of both worlds. And I was able to start getting the best of both worlds through what I had made. And other people started to notice through my blog because I started putting down the stats like, you know, this is digital, this is film, this is like with this thing I made, and this is like actual film. And photographers all over the world started being like, oh, this is really cool. I had no idea, you know, could I get a copy of that? And I started sending it out to all kinds of people for free. And it was just kind of spreading by word of mouth. At this point, I had gotten to know so many people in the photography industry, just being in it for so long, that without even really trying, it kind of spread on its own. And one winter I was in, this is like a few years later after, you know, playing with my scanner and starting to make my own stuff. I was in Hawaii with Jonathan Canlis from the Find Lab. And I was there for a kind of like a business workshop. I was trying to figure out how to like increase my sales, uh, you know, album sales and picture sales and things like that for my wedding photography business. It was, it was a great workshop. 
And there was one night I was just hanging out with Jonathan outside. It's Hawaii and the wind's blowing and it's like beautiful and kind of stormy. And he's like, he's like, hey, Kirk, you know, I've heard so much about these things you're making. He's like, I don't shoot film, but I've heard they look like film. And he's a very business-minded person. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about like making this into a business? Like, have you ever thought about trying to sell it? And I was like, dude, no one is going to want this. <laughs> no one's going to want this. It's not trendy. You know, it's too clean. No one's going to want this look. But he's like, you know, you should just give it a shot if you got some time. And, and I did. You know, in the winter, you got to keep yourself busy as a wedding photographer. So I put together kind of a crappy website because I really didn't know what I was doing. But the idea of the website was, if you can picture this, it was a single page. It had a grid of images, like six images on one side and six on the other that were like some of my early side-by-side tests between digital and film. And it said, which ones, you know, oh gosh, I can't remember exactly what it said, but basically like, can you tell which one is film? I bet you can't. Enter your email at the bottom and I'll tell you. And no one could guess it, like nobody you know, which is which. And I I gathered something like 5,000 emails in like a week, which was like insane at the time. And then I launched a simple like e-commerce site where I sold that one preset for $119, which is like doubly insane. But I felt it was worth that because it took me so long to make and I felt there was nothing else out there that could do it. And the promise to the buyer was that I would add two other like major films to that pack and you would get them for free over time. And I did that. And my ex-wife, she was like, I hope we make $5,000 on this. You know, I'd be like really, really happy because I'd spent so much time on it. I'm like, gosh, I don't know. You know, don't hold your breath. I hope, I hope this works. <laughs> and we launched it and then it just like went crazy. I mean, it just got legs of its own. People were blown away and um, the rest is history, I guess. But I never intended for it to be my career, but it was just something that I desperately needed. And I'd have to say it came at exactly the right time because we just had a baby and um, I wanted to be home. I mean, at that point I was doing destination weddings like 40, 50 times a year. And honestly, I was just getting burned out. And this was a way for me to make an exit out of photography. I didn't know it at the time. I mean, it still took a couple years to make that transition but now I'm out and um, it's been great. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm doing photography for myself, like projects that I like, but I'm also making things for other people. And I just really enjoy what we do here at Masson Labs. So talk to me, let's go into some nitty gritty here about just making a preset. Cause I think that's one of the things that is a differentiator for your presets versus other ones. It's just how detailed you are and how long it takes. So I just want to give people a picture and an idea of what goes into making just one preset. Oh, God. Well, I'm in my office right now. You could ask like anyone here how insane that process is and how many times I'm almost done. And then I'm like, okay, we have to push the release back three months because I want to take the entire thing apart because it didn't work on this one photo. You know, like it worked across like all of our test photos. And there was like one photo where I felt it wasn't good enough. And so I would take it apart, like tear it all the way down to the ground and make it again. The reason is, is that to make something that emulates an organic thing like film, it has to react correctly to light in all situations. Mm -hmm. So I found in the past, like a lot of presets are like, if you shoot exactly the same kind of example images they have and you apply it, yeah, it looks great. 
it was made for that exact kind of image, but I wanted something that would work, that would be flexible and dynamic like film. And to do that, you have to anticipate how hue, saturation, and luminance, and contrast, and micro-contrast changes in different light. And man, just nailing that stuff down is really hard. I mean, the final preset, I counted, like my very first ones I made had about 83 adjustments that happened in them. And if any of those are like off, even by like a point, it won't match perfectly. Mm -hmm. And some of my newer ones, like the pushed ones are even more complex. And I didn't actually make the push film presets until just now because it took me like five years to understand how push film reacts to light because it's different. It's not linear like uh, box speed. Right. So essentially like making a preset, one film type for me requires a team of people we're doing test shoots. We've got a ridiculous amount of gear. I mean, like Pelican cases full of stuff. And it takes like getting the right kind of shoots in the right light with the right colors, the right skin tones. So one, one thing that we also are really careful about is that we don't test just on one skin tone. Film has to act correctly across like a lot of the major skin tone types. And I feel that actually really sets us apart from anyone else is that our presets don't look good only on white people. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an intentional thing by any other company. Yeah. It's just a fact of, you know, if, if you're not thinking about your uh, test process, I think that's something that would be easy to miss. So there's a hell of a lot of stuff that goes into making them. It's not easy. I am so happy that our community is patient because mm -hmm. it takes a long time to get something out the door. But I know that when we do, it's something that I can stand behind and I would use myself, or I do use myself in matches film. Yeah, which I personally love. I think a lot of preset businesses that are out there, they definitely go for quantity versus quality. And so they're always kicking out new trendy or gimmicky presets, you know, for a lower rate, but they're not trying to do something very classic that's going to stand the test of time. No, getting that right balance of color and contrast and micro contrast is really hard. I mean, I wouldn't make presets unless they were based on something real. And film has a rich history. You know, it's like 200 years of groups of people refining a look for each film stock. And these looks are not based on like, I don't know, they're not made by engineers where they're like, this color of red equals this color of red. All the film stocks were made with aesthetic choices in mind, according to the culture that they're in, where, for example, like Fujifilm, the way that they treat green is really different than Kodak. And that is a cultural choice. It's not a uh, scientific choice. It's not like, let's make these trees look accurate. It's more like, what is most pleasing aesthetically, you know, for, mm -hmm. for Fuji 400H or whatever. And I wouldn't be able to do the same level of work if I was just kind of pulling a preset out of my butt. Like, just like, oh, I think it looks really, you know, or, or here's something I kind of stumbled on. You know, I was like kind of tweaking some stuff and, oh, this looks really interesting. There's, you know, browns are now red and there's no green in the photo and there's no highlights or whatever. And I'm like, this looks really cool. Like, this looks really like edgy. You know, I, I can't do that because it doesn't correlate to anything. And it may look really cool on that one photo or for like that one year, but I've been down this road. I know that it won't last. I am guilty of the pea colored skies and blue shadows of like 2001. 
Right. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, then we went into like textures, like textures in the sky and things. Oh, my word. Textures in the sky, grandma's tap shoes, Lord of the Rings actions. (laughs) <laughs> like like sharpening that yeah. makes people look like weird aliens you know where like their skin is like totally smooth and their eyes are like their eyes and teeth are like so sharp they could like hurt you <laughs> looks like razors yeah they're like razors or like high def eyes and everything else is like blurry mm-hmm. all that stuff is like tempting especially i think if you're a new photographer you're like oh cool this makes my boring photo look really cool but as you progress in your photography you start to realize that You can't make something mediocre into something great. You can make something great into something greater because you're starting with something that's already great. But I would say most of the time, a lot of the trendy things that happen are crutches. They're ways to to cover up your work. Yeah, and how I see your presets, and I mean, it's how I see film in a lot of ways is it's more, oh, A, it's just super consistent, but also there's a clarity to it. One of the strengths of the presets is it kind of gets out of the way of the image a bit to where you're not thinking, wow, look at that color grading. You're just more getting into the actual content. Exactly. Yes. That's actually all that matters ultimately Mm -hmm. in photography. I mean, at its deepest level, photography is a way of understanding the human condition and sharing that with other people. I think, I mean, maybe I'm like overly idealistic about it, but that's what I believe is that it's a way of showing truth and truth doesn't have to be literal, doesn't have to be exactly literal, but I also believe that your technique should never overshadow the content. It should complement it. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break from this episode and talk about some goals we have for the podcast. We really want to build a community around the podcast that encourages continued discussions after each episode and connections between photographers across all genres. We feel like all the different genres that are available for photographers that we can learn from each other. And we don't want to make this just a wedding crowd or a commercial crowd or an art crowd or a family photographer crowd. We believe that we can uh, all learn from each other in a way. And so the podcast will have different interviews with people in different genres. And we hope that everybody listens to all of them because you will learn something from other people that do things a little different than you. We're choosing to facilitate this through Patreon because it allows you to help us keep our production value high and it helps us move closer to producing the podcast weekly. For us, it just takes time and money to make every episode. We could go the advertising route, but we don't like building the podcast around ads that may not be relevant to you. So our goal is to create a space for deeper discussions about photography and how to have a sustainable career in our current times. So through Patreon, there are two tiers that help us out tremendously and gives you really great rewards. The first tier is the $5 tier, and it gives you access to additional audio from each podcast. And this isn't just some fluff audio we throw in there. It's really some of the most meaningful content from each episode. Uh, Patreon even has an app that you can download to your phone, and it's free, and you can listen to the additional audio there, so you don't just have to be on your computer or desktop all the time. The next tier is we have a tier for $10 per month, and what that does, that gives you access to our secret Facebook group, and you'll get a t-shirt. And the goal of the Facebook group is to create a place where we can discuss in depth the topics from each episode and allows you to connect with fellow listeners with a shared interest in more meaningful photography. 
we really want to bring this podcast to you weekly, but we simply can't swing the costs for all the post-production uh, that we want to put into each episode. We really believe production matters and makes your listening experience more efficient and more powerful. So if you're willing, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash musea and join the community that's building around each episode. We would love to get to know you better and to help you create more meaningful work. All right, so back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about the pushed film thing you've got going on and then what's next for Mastin Labs. Sure, yeah. So for people listening, if you're not familiar with pushed film, basically you're taking a film stock like Portrait 400, for example, and you're artificially increasing the speed of it like to 800 or 1600. You're pretending as though it's that speed film and shooting it that way because when your film goes to the lab to be developed in chemistry and you tell them you want it to be an 800 speed or 1600 speed film, they'll actually leave it in the chemistry longer. And what happens is that by calculating like an extra stop of time in in the chemistry, you're changing the way the film looks. And two kind of major things happen. One is that the black in the film will not become more developed. It's like an anchor point. So like, imagine that you shot a 400 speed film at 800, the very darkest parts of your image are gonna be underexposed. They're not gonna change with being set in the chemistry, but everything else will. So like the midtones especially, and the highlights will shift up. Like, you know, they'll be more sensitive, they'll develop longer. And what happens when you're pushing film is that the final scan, the final image has more contrast, a significantly more contrast, really, really dark blacks, which I think look great. And then if you push some film stocks like beyond one stop, you start to get shifts in the shadows, which can also be really cool looking, but still remain, you know, pretty natural looking. You know, they're not like bizarre shifts, but for example, like Portra 160 push two stops gets like a really beautiful kind of red brown color in the shadows, but you still get like beautiful skin and great highlights. So that's what pushed film is. I mean, in the past, it was a way to like get extra speed out of a film stock because you didn't have control over the light. Maybe you needed that speed. Or it was also a way to get a certain look. So if you're shooting, I don't know, like a Vogue cover or something in like the early 90s, maybe you would want that grittier look by, you know, pushing your film two stops when you do your shoot. Like maybe even in broad daylight, you know, like at noon. So you get that, that really harsh, like shadows, but like good skin. To get that look in Lightroom is challenging because we're translating something that's organic into something that's digital and having it react correctly to all these different light situations. It took me a good five years, six years to understand what happens in the shadows and how does contrast change from like box speed. So we've been working on that and we just released the uh, Portrait Push Pack couple months ago now. And it's flipping amazing. It's awesome. I think it's by far the best pack that we've made. Seems more accessible for people. Box speed film for a lot of people seems too flat. And it is. I mean, you've got like crazy dynamic range with film. Yeah, it's a little bit flat. That's what it looks like. And then that is what people usually take to a more light and airy look. So they'll start with the flat and then bump up the exposure and and it all holds together really nicely because it has so much range. But for the people wanting like a a darker or grittier look, or even a bright look, but with a lot of contrast, the push packs are amazing. They're awesome. They're just like 
super easy to get into. And right now we're working on a Fuji pushed pack, and that'll be the next one that comes out. So it'll be pushed Fuji 400H, pushed 800Z, and pushed 160NS. Dang. Yeah. It'll be cool. I would go crazy. Just playing with sliders constantly. Oh, it's awesome, man. 800Z is really hard to find. It's been really hard for us to make an emulation of that because the film was discontinued like 2009 or somewhere around there. And so I've been looking for years trying to build up enough cold stored 800Z that was in good enough condition, like the last batch, to be able to make these looks before it's gone. So we're doing that for both box speed 800Z, which we will probably add to the existing Fuji pack. And then we're also adding it into the Fuji push pack that's coming out. Nice. Sounds awesome. So you got the preset thing, selling that like hotcakes. And then you had the idea to create a camera app based off of that. So talk to me about Filmborn and where that's at and where maybe where it's headed. Yes, Filmborn. Um, Basically, at a certain point, I had the extreme luxury of being able to design the camera app that I always wanted. It is a huge privilege. It's an extraordinary opportunity. And I had had kind of a running list in my mind for years of like what I felt all the other camera apps were lacking. Um, I felt like most apps out there actually overcomplicated things like showing you like shutter speeds and stuff. I mean, come on, you're working with like a tiny little sensor and a camera, you know, the depth of field adjustment is not that important. What is important is giving the user the ability to get to, at least for me, a beautiful film look in as few steps as possible. So everything that we did with Filmborn was to mimic the way it is to actually shoot an actual film camera where you're really just focusing on the photo, you know, what you're, what you're doing, and then it comes back from the lab and it looks perfect. And so because of that, we were the first, I think we're still the only app that gives you the ability to swipe left and right to change color balance and up and down to change exposure while you're shooting. Which I love, by the way. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you can shoot, you know, and change it later in editing, but I mean, that's extra time. And often you can't correct everything back to the conditions when you're actually taking the photo. So it was really important to us to be able to give the user the power to override the auto white balance and exposure of the camera. Mm-hmm. That was like one of the first things. The second thing is we wanted people to actually see the world through that film stock. So every film stock in there, when you're shooting, you can have a, you know, by default it's turned on. You have like a live view of the world in that film so that you can see while you're shooting, like, does this look work for what I'm shooting and making all the adjustments just using your thumb. It takes like a second to get exactly the photo you want right when you take it. So this basically cuts out all the in-between steps between like finding what you want to shoot and getting a film look. That was the goal. The second part of Filmborn is our mission as a company, which is to teach people about what film actually looks like and educate them on how to shoot film, where to buy it, what the different looks you can get are you know, from different films. Um, equipping photographers with every tool they need to go out and start shooting film because I know from personal experience and from many, many people that I've worked with that if you shoot one roll of film successfully, you're hooked. I've never met a photographer who shot a roll of film, you know, and got decent exposure 
you know, like not too exposed or underexposed, but just something in the ballpark and had it developed well, you know, at a good lab and who wasn't hooked after that, who wasn't like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me in photography. You can't even explain it to people. Like they just have to do it. Mm -hmm. So Filmborn has a lot of education in the app itself. If you, you know, press down on any of the film presets in any part of the app and, you know, press and hold, it'll bring up like a really nice information sheet on that film what it's good for, what it's not good for, where to buy it. You can even buy it through the app, where to send it to get it developed, everything. We wanted to make it like as easy as possible to learn about film. And we made, for better or worse, for worse it feels like right now, but we made everything in the app free, basically, Mm -hmm. even though it had tremendous development costs because I really, really wanted to spread the message of shooting film to the whole world. And that was the only way I could think of to like make sure that people will want to play in the playground that I built in that app was to make it mostly free. There's a few things that you can buy, but Mm -hmm. you don't need those things to be successful. It's kind of like if you buy like the curves option or rangefinder, you're kind of like just helping us recoup our costs so we can develop more things. Yeah. I actually like the curves thing. I actually use it. I like it because just like you said, the exposure control, just moving your thumb up and down or what left or right, depending on how you're, phone is oriented but i feel like the auto balance is always too bright for me and like what i like so i'm always bringing it down and then having the curves capability to just tweak it a tiny bit is and you can do it within like just a few seconds is really nice you have more control than any other app i've found yeah and it's quick the presets in the app are very special too a lot of the camera apps the way that the presets are made is just you're kind of just using a color map and That approach didn't really work for what we're doing because, again, there has to be kind of an increase in micro contrast. It's not the same as normal contrast, but like micro contrast is what makes film feel like it has depth. And so the presets in Filmborn are actually multi-part. They're not just like a color map. There are like many things combining in this filter chain to give you a film look with almost no adjustments. And that was actually the most difficult part to develop. We actually had to create tools that didn't exist, like intermediary tools to even do that part. There's a picture of it somewhere on the internet, somewhere of like my homemade like MIDI board with wires coming out of it, with a guide that I have that shows like what every button does on it, you know, according to like other buttons pushed at the same time. And then that's hooked up to like an iPad Pro and Man, it's crazy. <laughs> so, what do you do? You have any plans in the future for Filmborn, or is it going to just kind of sit there and be in the world as it is? Oh, we have tons. We have many plans for it. We had to kind of take a break from it for a few months yeah. to get other things out for the desktop. But we've got a huge update coming soon. It's basically done. We're just testing it internally, and then we're going to be adding like all the presets from now on that come out at Massive Labs are gonna come out on Filmborn and on the desktop at the same time. It makes more sense. If we're testing for one, we should test for both. Like if, we're, if I'm making mm-hmm. film presets for the desktop, it's not hard to like add in the testing for, for the iPhone. So we're gonna do both at the same time. And yeah, we have lots of different films coming. We've got huge speed improvements. The uh, next update makes our app launch faster than any camera app in the store. It's pretty awesome. That is awesome. We have a great developer. And we're adding a bunch of things that the community has requested. And then 
you know, more presets. We're working on raw and a bunch of other things. We kind of held off on raw because I felt like I needed to see how the dust kind of settled on that. Like how many people actually shoot in raw? Like everyone says they want it, but how many people actually use it? Because in most apps, it's like an additional few steps. And honestly, there's no really good system in any app I've seen to shoot raw yet. We were kind of holding back on that because it costs a ton of money and time that we could use to do other things in the app. And we also are exploring ways to integrate raw where it's invisible, where there are no pre-processing or post-processing of the raw before you actually even edit it in the darkroom and blah, blah, blah. Because that takes all the joy out of shooting, I think, mobile. Yeah, yeah, you just want it quick. It's all about speed for the most part. Yeah, the ideal raw format that we're working towards is your camera would just be in raw mode. And when you go to edit in the darkroom, you're just like, oh, I can correct white balance and exposure even more than I did before. That's the best scenario for raw. Yeah, love it. Kind of from here on, I kind of want to get into how, you know, since you've had this kind of career shift with Madison Labs and Filmborn, how your engagement in that, how has that shifted your thoughts on photography in general? And then we'll dive into some more photography stuff. So we can just begin there. If you're running this company, if it's shifted your view on it from when you were shooting a lot of weddings. Oh, yeah. So from running Maston Labs or working with my team to expand what we do, I would say that there's two kind of themes that I'm thinking about. One is a theme that I've thought off and on about for a long time, and that is that the photography industry in general is very, very much concerned with the quick hit Instagram photo, whatever, that will get you likes or whatever. Things that will gain you social status and over things that actually have depth. So one thing I've noticed is that at least, I'm an old fogey, I guess now, but at least when I was doing <laughs> photography in the beginning, I was a photojournalist and it was all about story. It was all about story yeah. and commitment and conceptualizing an idea for a story and doing the research and working with the same group of people for like a week, a month, five months, two years, 10 years, and creating a body of work that has a lot of depth, a ton of depth. Do you know who like Matt Black is? Yeah, yeah, I've interviewed him before on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, his work is incredible. I mean, he is just like completely focused on documenting the poorest people in this country. Mm -hmm. showing us like a side of the United States that is like totally ignored by everybody. And he is like getting in, in there personally with people he meets in these towns, these small towns that are under this certain poverty level, getting to know them, like getting into their life. And as far as I can tell, he does not really give a crap about cameras. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. He's shooting like with a, maybe a point and shoot camera or something, but but the thing is, is that he totally gets it, that it's content over technique and style. Mm -hmm. like his content is so powerful that it doesn't need a $3,000 15mm f1.2 lens. He doesn't need that. It's so good that he, he just skips right past all that. He's like living with these people, shooting them, telling their story, making a difference. That is a theme that's really important to me, is getting people back to depth. Thinking about like, if I were to die, what difference did I make with my photography? Mm -hmm. That could be like, hey, you know, I really put my all into weddings and 
these photos are going to be really special to this couple. That is totally honorable and great. I mean, that is definitely worthwhile. But um, I also feel that a lot of photography, again, like I said before, is about the quick hit. It's about like, okay, deserts and floppy hats and V-dub vans are popular right now. So I'm going to go out and shoot that along with like everybody else. I'm going to get my likes on Instagram and then I'm going to see what else is cool. And then we're going to repeat it. And I feel if you're listening and you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's like part of your journey. But I'm just asking that people think deeper than that. What is the point of those photos? Things that are pretty are very one dimensional to me. You know, like a flower is pretty, a sunset is pretty, a pretty girl is pretty. Like, okay, whatever. Like, I'm not discovering anything about myself or about the world that way. You know, it's like this sandwich tastes good. That thing is pretty. I like this TV show, right? <laughs> They're all kind of like really basic level explorations of like this one existence we have. Mm-hmm. Whereas like doing the harder work of thinking about what do I care about? What do I not understand about the world? What scares me in the world or whatever? And running towards those things with your camera and trying to understand them, not for just yourself, but for people who will see your work. And people are always asking like, oh, how do I become famous or successful or I want my work to be noticed or whatever. And I'm like, the formula is really simple. It's really simple. It's just no one wants to look at it. The, the formula is consistency, commitment, and depth. That's it. You don't even have to be good at marketing or anything, I don't think. If your work is really, really consistent and you have a deep commitment that's more than just like what's popular right now and you have consistent depth, you know, you're really thinking about your story, it could be about anything and it will get noticed because the world is hungry for that. Mm-hmm. The world is starved for depth. So that's one big theme. The second theme that I've been thinking about, and maybe, maybe they're connected, and this is kind of why Filmborn is so important to me, is that I feel that 99% of the world has been left out of the storytelling. Again, it's no one's fault. It's just the way it is. It's just a structural thing. But it's the same, essentially, few like white men who have done all of the photography and all the storytelling for the whole world for like a hundred years. Why? Because they have access to the education, the tools, the company that will send them to these places or whatever. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, it's a huge luxury to be able to like do photography as a living. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a white male. I worked in photojournalism. I am talking about myself essentially But when I went to other, I've traveled to a lot of places like Africa, India, Laos. When I go to these places, I'm always thinking like, I can't even begin to understand these people's stories because I'm I'm just kind of parachuting in. You know, I've got my opinions. I've read about this country or about this issue and I'm just kind of parachuting in. I've only got like a week if I'm lucky. That's a long time these days. A week to like shoot something that tells this person's story. And for me, like mobile photography represents this huge paradigm shift in who is telling stories. A mobile phone is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can go to the smallest like little village in Africa, and there's probably like one phone, even if everyone's sharing it. And this opens up a gateway to having people tell their own stories 
So Filmborn to me represents breaking down a few barriers as we develop it more. Right now it's kind of just for the general masses, but I want Filmborn to be an education platform and a distribution platform and a platform for people to eventually make money from their work. That is our highest goal. Mm. And that's why it exists. And that's kind of a major theme of ours is how do we enable the 99% to participate? Yeah. I mean, all of that, all those thoughts are something I see and agree with. On a personal level for you, one of my questions is how do you balance your desire for those things for depth with, you know, selling presets, which are, you know, obviously they're about the look of the image in in a lot of ways, like the look of film is. So how do you help the community that you're building around the presets that you've attracted into more meaningful conversations and more meaningful photographs and not stay on the surface level? That's tough. It's like a thousand little things. Yeah. Education that we provide in the community, the way that me and, and my team, like the way we interact with people in the community, encouraging depth when we can. We also create a lot of education that's free for people. And honestly, it's something that we haven't done enough of. I mean, every time that I, I'm interviewed or I contribute to something, a publication or anything, you know, I'm trying to reach people at that point too. You know, like if you're hearing my voice, I'm trying to reach you and tell you that there's more to photography, much more to photography than the uh, rock star slash Insta-famous lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that stuff, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know how old people are listening to me right now, but I'm almost 40. Your perspective changes considerably as you get older about what's important. And you realize that when you look back on everything you've ever shot, as I'm actually doing right now, looking at my iMac, I'm looking at the first like photo story I ever really shot. I'm realizing that that was actually my best work. That was like before owning all the gear I thought I needed to have to in order to do my best work. That's before learning about lighting or learning about anything. That was like pure like heart photography. And that's awesome. Yeah. I'll ask you a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll go into kind of a final segment and wrap it up. Because I'm in the I'm in your group, the Maston Labs group. So I, I snoop obviously because what we do here with printing is I want to keep my ear to the ground level of what's going on in the industry and photographers what they're struggling with and going through because it shifts you know a lot. So I'm curious what you find is a common theme of what photographers are struggling with lately. Great question. We have a thread with almost 500 comments in the group. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Yeah, and. Uh, we ask, what is the number one thing you're struggling with as a photographer? And that thread is what drives our education. I mean, in a nutshell, I would say the things that people are struggling with most are, they seem really basic, but how do I get clients? Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. But it's also interesting to see how many people post about not having the confidence to be a photographer or to be the photographer they want to be. I find that one really interesting. It's kind of a self-doubt problem. But I would say those are two of the main themes. So for example, I don't know how to market myself. I don't know how to get clients. And then I don't have the confidence. It's actually funny how few of those questions are technical in that thread. And yet the bulk of all photography education online is about technical stuff. Gear, gear, more gear. You need more gear. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever heard of the theory? I'm sure everyone in my office is tired of me talking about this, but 
there's a theory called the hedonic treadmill. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but uh, I don't, most people aren't. But the concept of the hedonic treadmill is like, you know, so, you know, hedonism is doing things for pleasure for yourself. Yeah. So the hedonic treadmill is the concept that as human beings, we are on this treadmill our whole lives where we always want something that's better than what we have. And we think that it will bring us happiness and we get that thing. It, it could be a physical object. It could be moving to a certain place. It could be a new mate. But what happens is that we get used to that thing pretty quickly. And then it no longer has that same excitement for us. And so we kind of just toss it behind us on the treadmill. And now we're just running forward to the next thing. The idea being that when we finally get the X, Y, or Z that we want, we'll, we'll finally then be happy. And the problem with the hedonic treadmill is that if you don't know you're on it, you will fall into a trap of thinking that a better lens or a better, I don't know, whatever, a better model, a better place to shoot in, or even just something else in your life will finally satisfy you. And you're not looking in the right places because you don't know that you're on this treadmill. It's not easy to get off of it either. I, I think I'm off of it because I haven't bought any gear in a long time. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. I'm like selling stuff and just realizing what do I actually use. And instead of thinking about gear, I, I'm thinking about projects and scheduling my calendar. That's kind of what gets me excited is like, what am I going to shoot and when? And how does it all fit together? But yeah, gear is a plague. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this interview with Kirk doesn't end here. There is more to listen to on our Patreon page. This additional audio is extremely powerful and it's honestly just worth your time. Kirk, as you know, is such a great guy with a tender heart. And he tells a story from early in his career uh, and it touches something deep down with him. It brings a lot of emotion to the surface, which also made me uh, a bit emotional. So trust me, you'll be glad you listen to it. Even if you support us on Patreon for one month just to listen to this audio, it's completely worth it. Just visit patreon.com slash to learn more. And here is the preview with Kirk. You don't need anything to get started on your best work. You don't need classes. You don't need gear. You probably know deep down what you really want to shoot, but you're just afraid of failing so you don't do it. And what you don't have an infinite amount of is time. Time has a way of sneaking up on you. And so I would just tell people that are 23 to go out and explore with your camera.